laureate of Great Britain and Ireland, Alfred Tennyson, once called the 40th chapter of Isaiah one of the five great classics of the Old Testament record. This chapter has had a powerful influence on the history of the church. Did you know that Isaiah 40 was said to be the favorite passage or one of the favorite passages of Martin Luther? It also provided inspiration for the opening of Handel's Messiah. Isaiah 40 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. You see, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, they're full of woes. Isaiah prophesies judgment on the various nations of his day. But in chapter 40, the tone decidedly changes. Here, chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Judgment has ceased. Comfort has now come. Remember, the Bible is divided into two sections. The first 39 books, or Old Testament, speaks of God's judgment. The last 27 books, or the New Testament, is all about God's salvation. This is why Isaiah is often referred to as a mini-Bible. For it's a book of 66 chapters. The first 39, incidentally, portray God's sovereignty, that He's on the throne, that He judges the world. Whereas the last 27 chapters reveal that God is Savior, that He's on a tree, that He's suffering to save us. These last 27 chapters are laced with grace and salvation and blessing. They show how broad and how sweeping is the salvation of Christ, how it extends even to the end of the age. It's fitting that this second session, section begins, Comfort, yes, comfort my people. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now in the local, immediate context, the Assyrian siege has passed. Israel's warfare has ended. But we'll discover that these last 27 chapters speak not only of Israel's past, but also of her future. They foresee even to the end of the age when comfort will come to the Jews. You remember in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, there the Lord said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And the firstborn son always receives a double portion, either of blessing or of cursing. And with that privilege comes great responsibility. And this was proven true over and over with Israel. As God's firstborn no other nation has been so lavishly blessed or as severely punished as has the Hebrews. And this last section of Isaiah, it looks beyond even the Great Tribulation to the post-Armageddon world when Israel's warfare is ended, when God's people will have embraced their Messiah and her iniquity or sin will have been pardoned. Verse 3 tells us, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." In ancient times, the king always had an advance man. The forerunner would arrive prior to the king's visit to make the necessary preparations. If a road was too steep, or if it needed to be flattened, or if it was too rough and needed to be smoothed, it was up to the forerunner to make sure that the king was well received. And in relation to the coming of King Jesus, John the Baptist served as his forerunner. In fact, all four Gospels quote here, verse 1 of Isaiah 40, and identify this voice crying in the wilderness as a prophecy of John. He was Messiah's forerunner. And yet, rather than smooth things out, you remember, in a sense, John stirred things up. He lived an austere life that mocked the materialism and the ease of the Jewish leaders. He exposed sin. He preached repentance. 
In anticipation of Jesus' coming, John worked the spiritual landscape. He prepared the hearts of the people. And then we're told in verse 6, the voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And it's interesting, Peter picks up this verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, and he quotes it in the context of the New Testament. Again, human life is frail and transitory, but God's word, it endures, it is eternal. And you remember this was John's message, the voice crying out in the wilderness. He said the same the same things. You know, every time you gather up a grass, a bag, a lawnmower bag full of grass clippings, or every time you throw out cut flowers that have wilted after only a few days, remember the fragility of life. You and I are here today, and we're gone tomorrow. Indeed, the grass withers, the flower fades. It's the Word of God that abides forever. He says, O Zion, You who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Says, Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. Again, this too was John's message. He exposed sin, but then he pointed to the Savior. Behold, the Lord shall come. That was John's message. John turned to Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. His work was before him. John knew that Jesus' greatest work, his atoning work, was still before him. And then verse 11, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Remember in John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. That imagery isn't as vivid and as meaningful to us as it was to his disciples. For every day they saw shepherds in action. They saw how the shepherd would ceaselessly nurture the sheep. They saw how he would tend the flock. And this is how the Savior cares for His people. His care is comprehensive. Here Isaiah mentions four ways that Jesus tends or leads His flock. First, He feeds us. He satisfies our spiritual hunger, our cravings for meaning and for purpose and for affection. All find satisfaction in our Lord Jesus. He then gathers His flock. He knows us by name. He draws us together. And when we stray, He's quick to steer us back home. He carries His flock. When we grow weak, when we fall, Jesus promises to pick us up, carry us on His shoulders. I'm sure you've read the famous poem, Footprints in the Sand. It's a wonderful poem. A man's life is compared to a walk on the beach with Jesus. Their journeys marked by two pair of footprints. He and His Savior are walking side by side. But there's a stretch where only one set of footprints were visible. And so the man complains. He asks the Lord, where did you go? Those were the times when I needed you the most. And the Lord replied, that was when I carried you. And here Jesus promises to carry his flock. And then fourthly, the shepherd gently leads his sheep. He treats us as pregnant lambs. You know, a shepherd is gentle. He doesn't want to run the risk of miscarriage. You could say the shepherd handles the sheep with kid gloves. Inside the believer, the seed of God's Word grows. The life of God's Spirit grows. The shepherd knows this. And thus he protects. And he gives that time to come to fruition. He gives the believer time to bear fruit. But it doesn't happen overnight. He knows this. It takes time. And thus, understanding the process, the shepherd has patience. Aren't you glad that's how Jesus treats his sheep? 
And then verse 12 tells us, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has done these things? I mean, who was the inspector? Who checked on God when he built the universe? That's what Isaiah is asking, of course, no one. Who is accountable to God? No one. God holds the oceans in the palm of his hand. He says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him. Who's advised God? Of course, no one. With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who has been God's teacher? No one. <laughs> and yet we've all tried to counsel God from time to time, haven't we? <laughs> Foolishly, we've prayed and we've given God our suggestions, our counsel for what he should and shouldn't be doing. How foolish. Reminds me of the man who wanted to serve God, and so he prayed, Lord, please use me, especially in an advisory capacity. Isaiah says that God needs no counsel. Too often we forget God's grandeur, His glory, His self-sufficiency. Out of our pain, that's what happens. Out of our pain, we begin to question or criticize God. We fall victim to a slow, subtle erosion of respect. That's when we need to refocus. With whom did he take counsel? No one. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. Oh, the power of God. It shifts the earth's crust. At will, God can make continents disappear and raise islands out of the sea. To God, nations are nothing, just like the dust on the scale. As a side note, over my years of Bible study, one of my hobbies has been to collect a list of modern cliches that have originated in the Scripture. Like verse 15 here, as a drop in the bucket. Use that all the time. Did you know it originated here in Isaiah chapter 40? Let me give you a few others. Job 19 verse 20, skin of my teeth. Job 9 verse 18, catch my breath. How often have you said that and didn't know you were quoting Scripture? Jeremiah 5 verse 3, harder than a rock. That's from the Bible. Isaiah 60 verse 1, rise and shine. Ezekiel 8, verse 7, hole in a wall. Numbers 31, verse 53, every man for himself. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 20, a little bird told me. Did you know that was in the Bible? Ezekiel 21, verse 32, fuel to the fire. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, apple of his eye. Luke 7, verse 45, kiss my feet. <laughs> Not sure you want what you'll do with that list, but there it is. Verse 16. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. You know, verse 16 should be read before every assembly of the United Nations. <laughs> the nations of the world are less than nothing and worthless. It would certainly put us in a more humble posture. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? In other words, in light of God's majesty, Isaiah now exposes the absurdity of mankind's idolatry. He says, the workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. I mean, here's the insanity of idolatry. A rich man, he has an expensive idol with gold overlay. A poor man's idol is wood carved from a tree. Imagine worshiping a God no greater than your own means to create it. He says, have you not known, have you not heard? 
Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Well, notice this language here in verse 22. Remember, Isaiah is writing 2,200 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and yet he speaks of the circle of the earth. Despite what the skeptics like to say, the flat earth theory was never a biblical concept. Isaiah spoke of the circle of the earth. Hey, the Bible is not only infallible in matters of theology and of ethics, but it's also accurate in, his, in its historical and its scientific statements. And here it tells us that God sits above the horizon, above the circle of the earth. You know, it's interesting to compare the Bible's cosmology with that of other ancient religions. Did you know that the Egyptians said that an egg, that the creation occurred when an egg in the primeval sea hatched a sun god who then had four sons and their sibling rivalry is what created the universe? That was the Egyptian cosmology. The ancient Greeks believed that the earth was held up by the tireless arms of a giant named Atlas. Hindus believed that the earth rested on the back of three elephants who were standing on a giant tortoise who was swimming in a cosmic sea. Preposterous. Whereas the oldest of all of these books, the Bible, and then the first book of the 66 books of the Bible, Job chapter 26 verse 7 asserts, God hangs the earth on nothing. Now how's that? for some sophisticated cosmology for the ancientest of, sor of sources. You remember Jesus confirmed his belief in a global earth when he spoke of the rapture in Luke chapter 17. Two men, are, are, sorry, two women are grinding the grain. Grinding was a daytime activity. Two men are in a bed. That's a nighttime activity. He says, that's when I'm going to return. Wait a minute, Jesus. How could you promise to return in the day and in the night and not contradict yourself? Obviously, Jesus knew that the earth was round, not flat. He then tells us he brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when He will also blow on them and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number, who calls them all by name, by the greatness of His might and the strength of His power. Not one is missing. He says, why trust in man when the God that you serve is so grand and so great? How often we forget. But here God says, if you want to behold my majesty, my greatness, look up at the host, at the heavenly host. Psalm 147 verse 4 tells us, he counts the number of the stars, he calls them all by name. Here God says, look up at the stars in the sky, at the host of heaven. Behold what I have created and what I have named. Astronomers say that our galaxy contains a hundred billion stars. There are a hundred million galaxies in known space. Known space is one billionth of theoretical space. Thus, if we take just our galaxy, the Milky Way, and we set out to count the stars in our galaxy. If we counted one star per second, it would take us 2,500 years to count all the stars that are just in our own galaxy. And yet God knows and has named all the stars in all the galaxies all across the universe. God's intellect is infinite. 
There is not a speck of dust in the most remotest corner in all the universe that he doesn't know its history. And yet men worship idols? How insane! And modern man has the most ludicrous idol of all. He worships chance, randomness. Evolution suggests that this amazing orderly universe that we inhabit all spun into existence by a string of accidents. At least the ancients believed in something, not nothing. Verse 27 tells us, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. You see, Israel had, been, had accused God of being unfair, of forsaking His people. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. They've accused God of being unfair. Often God doesn't tell us what He's up to. But that doesn't mean He's not up to something. He is always vigilant. He tells us here He never faints. He never grows weary. God has a plan. You can trust that He does. We just don't always see his, the details. And then verse 29 tells us, He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall fail, faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Human prowess, it diminishes. Our bodies are like a battery. They run down after a while. They lose their juice. Even a young man grows faint and weary. But the Lord, the Lord is like a wall outlet. Just plug into the Lord. He becomes a continuous source of energy. We're told wait on the Lord. The Hebrew word wait, it means to connect, to twist together. In other words, get in sync with God and He will renew your strength. You'll run and not faint. You'll soar. On wings like eagles. As the man said, we can soar with the eagles or we can run with the turkeys. It's up to us. And this being Thanksgiving, you know where the turkeys, what happens to him. Chapter 41. Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, let them, let, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Now, in chapter 40, verse 27, Israel had accused God of letting them down. This sounds like the Jews today, does it not? They claim that God has forsaken them. They point to the Spanish Inquisitions or to the Russian pogroms or in, to Hitler's Holocaust. They talk about how he ignored their prayers. He turned a deaf ear to their plight. And yet here the Lord calls His people together. It's time to sit down, he says. It's time for us to settle this issue. Let us come near together for judgment. And here God's words to them are more anticipatory than they are historical. You know, remember, Isaiah's writing in the wake of Emmanuel's conquest over the Assyrians around the year 700 B.C. But God is going to raise up the Babylonians to judge Judah for its sin. And for 70 years, the Jews will be taken captive to Babylon. It will feel like God has abandoned them. And they will need the assurances of Isaiah there in Babylon. Verse 2 tells us, Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Now don't get confused here with Isaiah's use of the past tense. God, remember, is outside of the physical dimension that we call time. When we say God is eternal, we're not saying that he has lots of time. We're saying that he exists outside of time. 
Isaiah 57 verse 15 will speak of God as the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. From eternity past to eternity future. God sees the end from the beginning. This is how he can write of future things as if they've already happened. He can write of future things in the past tense. And here Isaiah is writing in the past tense about a scenario still future. The Jews in Babylon are basically crying out, Why, God, have you forsaken us? And God says he hasn't. In fact, he says that he will raise up a deliverer. Here, one from the east. This is the first mention of a person that will actually be mentioned by name in chapter 44 and 45. It's the first mention of the Persian king Cyrus. We're going to learn a lot more about him in the next two chapters. Let's just say chapters 44 and 45. There Isaiah will mention him by name. But he was the Persian king who ended up conquering Babylon and who set the Jews free and allowed them to come home. In fact, his first decree was to finance their return to Jerusalem. And yet here, 170 years in advance, Isaiah speaks to the Jews in Babylon and he assures them of a deliverer from the east. He says that even in Judah's darkest days, God will never abandon his people, punish and purify them, yes, but he already has a plan for their deliverance. Verse 4, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. Notice, who can predict the future? Who is capable of writing history before the events even unfold? Only Yahweh. Only the great I Am. And here he's called the first and the last. God stands simultaneously at the dawn and at the twilight of time. The statement about God is strategic. In Revelation 22, verse 13, there Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, wait a minute. There can only be one first and last. Thus, it means that if Yahweh and Jesus are both first and last, then they must be the same person. And here is a great proof text for the deity of Jesus. Notice verse 5. The coastland saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. Everyone was encouraged when Cyrus the Persian took the throne. He says, So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. In soldering Israel to Persia, God gave the Jews stability when they needed it most. He says, but you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. And here's an amazing title. The title that God gives to Abraham, he calls him my friend. How would you like it for God to refer to you as my friend? Pretty amazing. Well, guess what? He has. He has called you his friend. You remember in John 15, verse 15, we learn this is how Jesus sees us, how he sees all his disciples. There Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Oh, we need to be reminded that Jesus saved us, not just to make us his servants, but to make us his friends. He's much more interested in our friendship than he is our service. Remember, he saved you for fellowship with you. And then verse 9, You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Notice God's promise to Israel. He will never cast the Jews away. He will keep who he has chosen. And this puts to death what is being taught today in theological circles and is known as replacement theology. The idea that God is through with Israel. 
that he's taken all of the promises that he made to Israel and he's transferred them to the church. That is a heretical doctrine. And it contradicts verse 9 here in Isaiah. He says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a safe place to be in God's righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. And those that have strove against Israel are quite a group. Quite a number of people have been incensed against Israel. Predominantly the whole earth. And yet God is going to bring them to shame and disgrace. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Boy, this echoes God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the primary reasons God has been so good to our country. Over the years, has blessed the United States. It's because we've chosen to bless those that God blessed. We've supported Israel. But we turn our back on Israel to our own peril. He says, fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Even this worm Jacob, God says he will help. It's interesting, God refers to his people as Jacob. And you remember this man Jacob, he was a worm. He was a slippery, slimy thing. He was a double-crosser, was he not? He tried to steal the birthright from his older brother Esau. And throughout their history, whenever the nation Israel has acted dishonestly, there being a Jacob. And yet you remember God changed Jacob's name to what? To Israel, to Prince of God. And thus, whenever the nation acts nobly, they're in Israel. Whether Jacob or Israel, God promises to be with them. His protection of them, His support of them is unconditional. Verse 15, Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Israel will receive a winnowing fork that will spread out the mountains, that will toss the high hills. Israel will become mighty. He says the poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry lands springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar in the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together. All these trees are foreign to the area. They'll all be transplanted there. That they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. God will turn the wilderness into a forest. He'll show the nation Israel that he has not forsaken them. And then verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. God has made his case. He's proven why he hasn't forsaken Israel. Now he challenges their idols to present their cases for how God has been unfaithful. He says, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and see it together. 
Yahweh is calling for the idols of the people to forecast the future, like he's done. Let's see how they do in their predictions. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. These idols, they do neither good nor evil. They do nothing. They're impotent. Just sticks and stones. And the person who follows them is an abomination, he says. He's a despicable thing. He says, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. Now Cyrus, remember, he was the one who came from the east, but this deliverer comes from the north. It hearkens us back to Psalm chapter 75, verse 6. There we're told, exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Notice, promotion doesn't come from east, west, or south. It comes from the Lord. Now, a few of us southerners will hate this, but the inference is that God occupies the north. Isaiah 14, verse 13, places God's throne on the farthest sides of the north. Leviticus 1, verse 11, tells us that the burnt offering was always to be sacrificed on the north side of the altar, before the Lord. Apparently, God's dwelling is in the north. So, who is this deliverer from the north? He says, who has declared from the beginning that we may know, in former times that we may say, He is righteous. In other words, who is from the start? Who is righteous? Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. Of course, the deliverer from the north is none other than Jesus. He came the first time bringing good tidings, Isaiah tells us. Good news. The problem is the people didn't listen. No one heard his words. Verse 28, For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word? Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. Jesus came the first time bringing good tidings, but no one heard him. Folks were too busy pursuing worthless things. And the same mistake is being made today. Chapter 42 tells us, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now to this point in Isaiah, the phrase, my servant, has been a reference to the nation of Israel. But here, notice the servant of Yahweh is identified by a personal pronoun. I have put my spirit upon him. He's now talking about a person. And from this point forward, we're going to learn more and more about Yahweh's servant until the prophecy crescendos in chapter 53, where there Isaiah will give us a description of the suffering servant dying on the cross. He'll describe the crucifixion of Jesus in such detail that you'd think we were reading an eyewitness report of the actual events rather than a prophecy written 700 years beforehand. Verse 2 tells us, Of Jesus, servant of Yahweh, He will not cry out nor raise His voice nor cause His voice to be heard in the street. And this wasn't the Jesus style, was it? He wasn't loud. He wasn't boisterous. John was the voice crying from the wilderness, not Jesus. Oh, Jesus impressed folks not by his volume, but by his content. With what he said, not with how he said it. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. In Matthew 12, this verse is quoted of Jesus. This is his approach to the weak and to the wounded. And tonight, if you're a bruised reed, 
If you've been crippled or weakened or bent against your will, if your once tall stalk now droops over, or if you're smoking flax, if you feel like you're burned out and exhausted, that if I looked in your heart tonight, I'd find the dying embers of a once roaring fire. If you're a smoking flax, if you're a bruised reed, understand Jesus doesn't push you aside. He doesn't throw you away. Oh, no. No, no. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax he will not quench. Jesus wants to be to you a splint and a flint. He wants you to stake your life to His. He has strength that you need. His strength will prop you up until your little strength becomes strong again. Ask Him, and He'll fan the flame of your dying embers. He'll rekindle passion in your life and in your ministry and even in your marriage. Rather than punish people for growing weak or turning cold, He breathes new life into tired people. Jesus revives the love and hope that had almost died out. This is how Jesus treats people. Remember the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. and Thus he treats his flock like pregnant lambs with kid gloves. And you know, if we want to be like Jesus, this is how we'll learn to treat other people in his name. Well, then verse 4. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. And again, this is prophetic of Jesus. He will not fail. He might get discouraged. You might get discouraged, but not Jesus. He will not fail until he has established justice in the earth. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, He who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And again, all of this is prophetic of Jesus. He is the author of a new covenant. He is a light to the Gentiles. He opens blind eyes. He brings out prisoners who sit in darkness. What great things Jesus does and will do. And then verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will give to another, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Notice here, God shares His glory with no one. His is an unshared glory. And again, this is an interesting verse because it provides us another proof text for the deity of Jesus. For you remember, when we come to John 17, verse 5, we'll hear Jesus pray, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Notice, if Jesus shares glory with the Father but the Father shares His glory with no man, well, then either the Bible contradicts itself, or once again, Jesus and the Father must be one. And I believe the latter, that they are one, that theirs is a shared glory. Verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Hey, never scoff at Bible prophecy. For God delights in telling His people things before they occur. He he says here that, that new things I'll declare before they spring forth. I've told you about them. God delights in this. This is one of the ways that He affirms to us His sovereignty. He says, sing to the Lord a new song in His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise to the coastlands. From coast to wilderness, let everything give glory and declare praise to God. 
He says in verse 13, The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Now, we identify with Jesus as the shepherd, don't we? We see him as a light to the Gentiles, as an opener of eyes in prison doors. But here, the same Lord who gently leads us, who treats us with kid gloves, who will not cry out nor raise his voice. Here he comes as a man of war to prevail against his enemies. And notice he will return with a loud shout. You see, the difference is that this is when Jesus comes the second time. It will be much different. He says, I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. And oh boy, (laughs) that's an exaggeration. God says, I have held my peace. Over the centuries, God would have been just in judging His people, in judging this earth. But He held His peace. He showed restraint. He stood still. But, Now I will cry like a woman in labor. And I've been there. I've heard her. She can wail when she's given birth. I will pant and and at once. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and drop all their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands and I will drop the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. God will judge Israel, but He will take care of the blind and the needy. And they shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, You are our gods. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Who is blind but my servant? Israel was the blind servant of God. God had showed her so much, and yet she didn't see. Or as deaf as my messenger whom I sent. Israel was God's blind servant. Israel was God's deaf servant. She was supposed to be God's messenger, but she was deaf to His words. Who is blind as he who is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant, seeing many things, but do not observe, opening the ears, but he does not hear. Boy, this is my fear. I don't want to be a blind messenger. I don't want to be a deaf messenger. Just because we speak for God, we still need to listen to God. Despite her privileges, Israel couldn't see or hear God's word, and so God had to send another messenger. His son, Jesus Christ. As verse 6 said, He'll send Jesus as a light to the Gentiles. And then verse 21. The Lord is well pleased for His righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey and no one delivers, for plunder and no one says restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Israel's warning here is for the time to come. It's for a future generation, especially the Jews who returned from exile in Babylon. And then verse 24, Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord, He against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in His ways, nor were they obedient to His law. Therefore He has poured on Him the fury of His anger and the strength of battle, It had set him on fire all around, yet he did not know. And it burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. God knows how to discipline his people. He won't forsake them, but will he judge them? Yes. He held his peace for a long time, but his patience isn't forever. God's judgment will come. Well, chapter 43 begins. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, And he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by your name. You are mine. Boy, Israel has always belonged to the Lord and will remain so. He will never abandon Israel. Judge them? Yes. But forsake them? No. Even though at times it may have looked like it. He promises, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. These are promises that have comforted God's people wherever they've gone over the years, whenever they've walked through the fires and through the floods and through the rivers, any trying situation. Here we're told that whenever you're forced to pass through a difficult experience, you won't be alone. For God will pass through it with you. Even the fire. This was literally fulfilled in Babylon for those three Hebrews who were thrown into the fiery furnace. You know, some of us come on Sundays and we're like a sponge. We, we just soak up the Word. We take in the Word. But you know, sponges inevitably get squeezed. When you're squeezed, what comes out? Is it faith or is it fear? He tells us to trust Him when we walk through the fire, through the floods, and we won't be burned. Verse 4, Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Again, Isaiah wrote this prophecy 2,700 years ago. And though it was fulfilled in the days when the Jews came back from Babylon, to a degree, they were brought back from the east, this is a more comprehensive return. Here the Jews are being brought back from every direction, from all over the earth. And though this was written 2,700 years ago, our generation has been privileged to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. After World War II and the Holocaust, European Jews, they flocked to Israel. After Israel's independence in 1948, Jews from the east, from the Arab nations, joined in returning to their land. In the early 1980s, Jews from Ethiopia and Russia also returned to the land promised by their forefathers. Jews have come home and continue to come home from west and from east and from north and from south, just as Isaiah predicted. Today, the population of Jews in Israel has eclipsed 6 million. We've seen this verse unfold before our very eyes. And then verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. In other words, God declares His sovereignty by foretelling the future. This is why prophecy is so important. He says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Wow, what a great verse. What a heavy verse. God has always been. God will always be. Verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me, there is no Savior. And here is a third proof text for the deity of Jesus. Throughout the New Testament, who is called Savior? Jesus is our Savior. And yet here, Yahweh says that He is the only Savior. Again, either the Bible contradicts itself, or Jesus and the Father are one. 
He says, I have declared and saved. I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am He. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Wow, what a powerful thing. It's amazing to me to hear God talk about Himself in this life. To remind us of how great and glorious He is. I mean, I work, and who will reverse it? He says, before the day was, literally before time began, there was God. The true God dwells outside of time. I work, and a lot of people want to reverse it. They think they can improve on it, or correct it, or straighten it out. But God works. No one reverses it. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. In other words, God will destroy Babylon. He will extinguish its flame, and He will give His people a new start. He'll bring them back to their land. He says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I love that. God will do a new thing. Webster defines the word serendipity as the faculty of finding valuable or agreeable things not sought for. And I believe that as we walk with God, we discover that the works of God have a serendipitous quality to them. In other words, you never know what's going to happen next. God is full of surprises, things that are not sought for. Valuable and agreeable things come our way when we follow God. I like the Living Bible translation of verse 18. But forget all that. It is nothing compared to what I'm going to do, for I'm going to do a brand new thing. And how often God does. Once I picked up the telephone to make a phone call, and I heard ringing on the other end. I hadn't dialed in. I just picked up the phone. A lady answered, hello? I said, hello? Neither of us were trying to call the other, and yet we had connected. Well, I apologized for the inconvenience. I hung up the phone. And then I picked back up the receiver, expecting to get a dial tone. Instead, the same lady was still on the phone. Well, again, I apologized. She suggested that this time she would hang up first. And so we both hung up the phone. But then when I picked the phone back up again, she was still on the phone. Finally, I said, ma'am, I know why this is happening to us. The Lord wants me to tell you a few things. And so I spent a few minutes sharing with the lady the gospel. She couldn't go anywhere. She couldn't hang up the phone. And so I spent a few minutes sharing the gospel with this lady. This time, I hung the phone down. Then I picked it up again, and there was a dial tone. Obviously, God wanted me to talk to that lady. God is full of surprises. And that was just one of the many, many, many serendipitous twists that my life as a Christian has taken. I'm just saying, following Jesus spices up your life. And then he says in verse 20, The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. God will provide for the returning exiles as they come to Jerusalem. He says, but you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. 
God is saying, where's the beef? I mean, I've been so good to you. Why haven't you offered me your sacrifices? The Old Testament required sacrifice from the people. And the people had neglected their offerings. God had been good to them, but they had neglected God. I suppose that applies to some of us. When God has been so good to us, we've neglected giving of our tithe and of our offering to the Lord, giving back to Him a tenth of all that He's given to us. How can we be so ungrateful? He says, You have brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. God wanted their sacrifices, but not for the aroma. It was their repentance that pleased Him. They wanted the, he wanted to see the brokenness in them that came with their sacrifices. He says, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Notice that. He blots out your transgressions for His own sake. He saved you to honor His Son. He saved you to promote His grace. To show off the manifold grace of God. Did He save you because He loved you? Well, sure He did. But He also saved you for His own sake. To prove that Jesus is just and the justifier of those who come to God. He said, put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. As if they confess their sin, He's faithful to forgive them. He says, you first, your first father sinned, and your mediators have transgressed against me. God didn't give them on account of Abraham, or on account of the various priests who served them. He forgave them out of His grace. He blotted out their transgressions for His own sake, as He does ours. And then verse 28, Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. The princes of the sanctuary were the priests. And God here plans to curse or to declare the priest profane or unclean. The worst thing that could be said of a priest, that he's unclean. And God will start over with a new priesthood. And all you have to do is read the New Testament book of Hebrews and you'll learn that Jesus is a better priest than the princes of the Old Testament sanctuary. And there we have Isaiah chapters 40 through 43. Got a little time now to read the next two chapters, 44 and 45, and we'll study this amazing prophecy where Isaiah predicts 170 years in advance of a deliverer from the east a man that he mentions by name, this man Cyrus. One of the amazing prophecies in all of the Bible. And again, God loves this prophecy thing. He loves to impress us by telling us the future before it happens. It's how he shows that he's sovereign, how he shows that he's outside of time. And that he is the eternal God. Now, usually we have questions uh, from you. But tonight, I've got a question for you with the little bit of time we have left. I want you to name me the three proof texts for the deity of Jesus that we talked about tonight. What's 4311? No Savior. All right, somebody give me another one. Proof text to the deity of Jesus. Somebody else catch it? He shares his glory with no one. He, there's only one Savior. God's glory is unshared. Where's, what's the third one? You remember? Well, that one, but the one that we mentioned specifically is the first and the last. You remember? The first and the last. There's only one first and last. That's exactly right, Christian. First and last. 
Now, I mentioned these to you. I want you to remember those verses. Jot them down. Where, where Yahweh says He's the first and the last, where He says that He is the only Savior, and where He says He shares His glory with no one. And then parallel those to the verses in the New Testament where Jesus is the Savior, where He calls Himself the first and the last, and where He, share, he thanks God for the glory they share together. And I want you to jot those, those Scriptures down. And then the next time a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, you're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Because when that Jehovah's Witness walks in, usually we take them to the verses like uh, in John where it says, I, Jesus says, I am the Father of one. Uh, where in Isaiah, that I'm the mighty God, the everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that's applied to Jesus. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But here's what happens. In the Watchtower uh, translation, in the New World translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness Bible, they've changed those verses. They've, they've altered those verses. Without any scholarship whatsoever, they've changed those verses. But here's what you can do, and I've done it myself, and it's a lot of fun. You want to see a Jehovah's Witness squirm. This is great fun. Well, you want to see them saved, not just squirm. But it's kind of nice to see both happen. But here's what you can do. Jot those verses down. And when that Jehovah's Witness walks in and says, Hey, can I borrow your New World Translation? And look up those verses. Because those proof texts for the deity of Jesus, they're still there. And you can show them. You can say, wait a minute. Yahweh says that there's no Savior but Him. And yet Jesus calls Himself the Savior. What's the deal here? And Yahweh says that he shares his glory with no one, but Jesus talks about the glory he shared with the Father. And wait a minute. Yahweh says that he's the first and the last, but Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the first and last. It, help me here. Isn't there just one first and one last? And you got him. Jesus is God. There's no other explanation. Of course, they're going to squirm and they're going to, but who knows? I mean, maybe you'll convince somebody. But that's a lot of fun. That's something that you can do. You can do that, interesting enough, out of their own New World Translation because they haven't, they haven't, uh, they, they, they haven't changed those verses. It hasn't been used enough. You can have a lot of fun. Well, Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Bless us tonight as we go. Give us a great week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.